And I wanted to begin today by talking to you about mistaken identity. If you've ever had your identity stolen or had it confused, you know how much trouble this can bring into your life. And when I was in college, Bank of America sent their favorite collection agency after me. Uh, they said I said I owed them $10,000. Now, I had never as much even cashed a check in Bank of America. And so it took me weeks to prove to them that I was not the Scott Savage they were looking for. Ultimately, it came down to the fact that the Scott they were looking for had one T in his first name, and I had two. I've never been so thankful for that one T in my whole life. Well, about a year later, a couple came to my parents' church in Las Vegas, and I came to my dad, and they go, we're so excited for Scott. And they're like, why? Well, aren't you excited? And they go, if you would tell me, then maybe I'd be excited. We saw him on TV last night. My dad's like, if Scott was on TV, he would have told me. They said, yeah, we saw him on Wheel of Fortune, and he won $57,000. My dad goes, he would have called me for that one. And it turns out the Scott Savage from Las Vegas that won $57,000 had one T in his first name. It was the guy. So that night I prayed, dear God, help Bank of America find him. And um, I'm not a good prayer, but, uh, but anyway, that's the prayer I prayed. It was apparently a problem for me in that season for people to be confused about who I was because I called my mom this week and we were reliving that story, making sure I had all the details right. She said, well, do you remember what happened when you were in high school? And I said, no. She said, when you were a senior in high school, somehow you got on the like AARP local list. And so as a 17-year-old, she said, every day we got mail from every senior adult living center, every older adult seminar, how to get the most out of your Medicare benefits. She said, I even had people calling the house while you were at school asking to discuss with you your benefits through Social Security. And so uh, as a 17-year-old, I was not excited about this. Um, but it was a, an interesting experience. And then I moved to Arizona. And then in 2008, I learned that according to the association, to get this right, the association of the chief of police, in 2008, Arizona was the number one state in the whole country for ID theft. Luckily, we're not winning anymore. We're down to number nine, uh, but apparently it's still a big deal here, so be careful. The issue of identity goes so much beyond a game show or theft. Our identity is the most important thing to us. When you meet somebody for the first time, you probably say, hi, my name is, and you should share your name. And then the subsequent questions become identity-forming questions. What do you do? Where are you from? What do you like? What are you about? And I think one of the reasons why my generation, millennials, have such a huge problem with our identity is that we're trying to figure out that identity in front of everybody. If you're older, you remember what it's like to be a 15-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 21-year-old trying to decide who you were. Imagine doing that in front of everybody, in digital, on your device, all the time. So why I think one of, you know, one of the reasons why my generation struggles so much, but it isn't just millennials. I watch men struggle with their identity. If you've ever watched a man who's lost his job, or retired, or been told he can no longer do what he has always done, you watched a man go through an identity crisis. Because as a guy, every time we meet each other, it's like, hi, my name is Scott. Hi, my name is Bob. First question, what do you do? And when what you do is taken away, it isn't that a man can't do that anymore, it's that he doesn't know who he is. And for women, you guys have it even worse off. If you stay at home with your kids, you feel inadequate, because you're not being a strong, independent career woman. 
If you don't have kids, you feel like you're not enough of a woman. And then if you have kids but go to work, your kids' parties aren't Pinterest-worthy, and you feel bad about that too. And so you're just screwed either way, you know? And so, um, and so it's a challenge for us in this world to find our identity, to locate the source of our worth and value in a way that will sustain. And that brings us to the story of Mary. I gave you this card last week to preview this message. And on the card, it says, do I believe what God says about me is true? And so this morning, we're going to dig into that story. In your bulletin today, you got another card. It's for next Sunday. It's about Joseph with another question. And each week in this series through Christmas, we're asking questions that I believe these individuals who were a part of the birth story of Jesus asked themselves. And there's question, there are questions that we ask ourselves. And in discovering how they answered them, I think we can discover help for how we can answer these questions too. I want to begin today with a quote from a man named A.W. Tozer. He was a pastor in the mid-20th century. And Tozer said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm not sure if you think about it very often, but just for the sake of conversation today, I want you to pause and just think about what's your view of God? What's your image of him? If you were to describe to somebody what is God like, what adjectives would you start using? Not the ones you have to use, like because you're in church and I'd be listening, but like what would you just use? What do you believe about God? I want to restate Tozer's quote in a little bit different way. I think in its essence, Tozer is saying the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. And I think the reason why he's saying that is that our theology of God impacts everything else. What we believe about God impacts our view on the whole world. And if Tozer's true, if this is the most important thing about us, then what I want to do today is I want to leave that for another sermon, and I want to go to the second most important thing about us. That's our big idea this morning. The second most important thing about you is not what you think about God, but it's what God thinks about when he thinks about you. The second most important thing about you is what God thinks about when God thinks about you. I'm not sure if you've ever asked that question either. What does God think about when you come to mind? When God's thinking about you, what adjectives is he using? I'm not sure he's limited to adjectives, but for the sake of conversation today, what comes to mind for you? And the reason why I raise these questions is I think they're the context of Mary's experience. I think maybe we've sold Mary short. We only talk about her one time a year. I think it's because we're afraid of being Catholic. Um, but I think we maybe have missed something here. And so I hope that today we can look at her story with fresh eyes and see maybe some things that we've missed. And so if you have a Bible, would you open it up to Luke chapter 1? verses 26 to 38, and then we'll be in another little section there. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Luke is the third book in the New Testament. It's about three quarters of the way through the Bible. Uh, Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story, and so that takes us to Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 1. We'll be there as we uh, make our way towards Christmas, and this is a little bit of a longer passage, and we'll be reading it in one big chunk. So I'd encourage you, would you stand up with me as we read? You can follow along on the screens or on your Bible in front of you. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Luke 1, begins, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom, we saw that the king and Pastor Tom's comments on communion, and as his kingdom, there will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? It's an important question. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, and she's also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And if you're reading your Bible, see down to verse 46. And later the angel departed from her, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble state of his servant, and for behold, from now and all generations will call me blessed. That's us. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is with those who fear him from generation to generation. God, I pray that out of this text this morning, you would speak to us, especially those of us who've heard these words so many times. I pray that your spirit might move and that we might listen in new and fresh ways. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This morning, I want us to lean into what I think are three questions that Mary asks, that Mary has to answer, and I think there are three questions that we ask that I think we have to answer. I don't think we're in the exact same position as Mary. None of us are 14-year-old girls living in the first century in modern-day Israel, but the questions that she asks aren't that different from the ones we ask. And the first question I think we have to answer is, what does God think about? when God thinks about you. I raised this question earlier, and I think it's so tremendously important because I think it's the foundation of our relationship with God, what God thinks about when God thinks about us. You know, if, if we were to lean into Mary's experience a little bit, we'd, we'd find a 14-year-old girl living in the first century in a patriarchal world. And what that means is that women had very little rights. I mean, if, if you think women aren't equal enough, just go back 2,000 years. You'll be surprised. And, and what happens in that world is that 14 years old, commonly, uh, Mary's parents would have arranged a marriage with another family. So this is not Match.com. This is not Swipe Right. This is not Swipe Left. This is, this is a different world. Mary may have barely known Joseph. Uh, she may have liked him. She may not have liked him. It really didn't matter in that world. And she's preparing to be married to him. She's thinking about leaving behind her mom and her dad and her home. And all she knows, she's, she's preparing to be the, the wife and the, the mother of Joseph's children. I mean, it's a pretty vulnerable time. And it, if you've ever been around a 14-year-old girl, they ask some pretty big questions about who am I? And do I have worth? And do I have value? And where does that come from? And 
And Mary, in that place, receives a message from God. And the message from God includes some pretty incredible things. The first thing that she hears is that she's favored by God. Now, we don't use that word favor very often, and if we do, we get it confused. We think it's getting a front row parking spot at our favorite store, you know, which is pretty cool. I'll say that. Um, I went down to the lighting square last night, and I got a spot real close. I wasn't sure if it was God, but I thanked him anyway. Um, But the favor of God really is the unmerited kindness and mercy of God. And so, so the angel says to Mary, you're favored by God. You're receiving this kindness and you didn't deserve it. And Mary knew there was nothing that she'd done as a 14-year-old girl in this small town. Somebody told me this morning that in this day, Nazareth had 1,400 people. It makes press it look like New York City. I mean, it's just, it's a small place. And she's an insignificant girl. It says that she's favored by God. If you think about it, she's trusted by God. I mean, if you've ever held a baby before, either it's yours or your child's or your friend's, I mean, you hold a tiny newborn. I mean, you feel this tremendous responsibility. The first time I held West, my first thought was, I'm, I'm going to drop him. Um, and I didn't um, until later. Um, I, I didn't tell us the first service. Uh, he was two weeks old, and I was texting on my iPhone, and I didn't have a good case, and it slipped, and it hit him right here in the forehead. So if he has problems later, it's because of me. Um, but it's a tremendous responsibility to, to raise a child. And she was trusted with God's son. I mean, think of that pressure. I mean, don't screw that one up. I mean, the mom guilt she probably was going to deal with. And, and yet she's trusted by God for that. Of every woman on earth, at any time, in any place, he picked Mary. That's tremendous trust, and she felt that. It says that she's grateful that he knew her humble state. She knew that she wasn't anything out of the ordinary. And yet God chose her and looked on her in her humble state. She says as much in her song that we call the Magnificat that we read from earlier. And it says that he extended her mercy. She realized that she needed to receive the mercy of God. I think one of the ways I would sum up God's view on Mary is God liked Mary. It may not seem like it's a tremendous thing to you, but I think many of us struggle to believe that. Many of us believe that God loves us. We're just not sure he likes us. We think he has to love us because he's God. And when we say we, I mean me. For years, I wasn't really sure that God actually liked me, that, that God actually enjoyed me, that God found something to be um, delightful to delight in or to be proud of. I knew that he gave Jesus to die for me, but I wasn't sure that that was out of love. I thought it was maybe out of obligation. I mean, he's God. He had to. Okay, Jesus, you got to go. Scott screwed up. You know, we're God. We do this, you know, and no, he chose it. He delighted in it. He did it out of love. You know, the most famous verse in scripture does not say, for God was so obligated to the world. It says, for God so loved and that was, a, I mean, that was simple, but it blew my mind the first time I realized it. And when I realized that the favor of God was on me, not because of anything I did, that changed everything. And so this morning, I want to help you see a little bit of what I did. I want to help you see the picture of who God says you are. And so I'm going to give you a long list of scriptures this morning that give you almost a fire hose view of what God says about you. And I've got a list for you in a second, so don't try to write these all down for those of you who are type A in the building. 
The first thing God says about you in the very first chapter of the Bible is that you were created in the image of God. God created man, and that's mankind, in his own image, male and female, he created them. So regardless of what you believe about God, you were created in his image. You have tremendous worth and value. Psalm 139 talks about the fact that you were made by God's hand. He formed your inward parts. He knitted you together. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Your frame was not hidden from him when you were created in the secret. He intricately wove you together. He saw your unformed substance. You are not an accident. You're the handiwork of God. He continues to talk about the fact in in John 1 that you're God's son or daughter. You may not be proud of who you're a son or daughter of. You may not be glad you're born into the family you were, but because of the work of Jesus to all who receive him and believe in his name, you can be called a child of God. You're adopted into his family. And he didn't have to have you. He chose you. Let's continue. In Romans 8, 1, we read that we are no longer condemned, those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And that's really good news because a lot of us condemn ourselves every day. We remind ourselves of all the things we've done that, that hold us back, that are the reasons why God can't use us. In Romans 8, 37, we read that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There is nothing that in Christ you can't conquer, even your sense of who you are. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 12 says that you are the body of Christ on earth. We think about it in terms of us as a group being the body of Christ, but each of us are individually the body of Christ too. So wherever you go, Christ is because you're there and he lives within you. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read that we are new creations, that God has made us brand new. Galatians 2 talks about the fact that we've been crucified with Christ and Christ lives in us. So while blood may be pumping through your veins, God's presence is also there too. In Ephesians 2, we read that we've been saved by grace, not because we're awesome, but because God is rich in mercy and he extended grace to us. Ephesians 2.10 says that we're God's masterpiece. We're literally his crowning achievement. We're the best thing God ever did. You are the best thing God ever did. Some of you have never ever heard that and you've never believed it. Colossians 1 says that we are forgiven and in Jesus we have redemption, that our past doesn't have to define our future. And in Philippians 1 we read that we are an unfinished work which God promises to complete. I know that's a lot, but that's what God thinks about you. That's what he thinks about you and that's what's possible when you embrace his son Jesus. Now, for those of you who are type A, if you turn your hand out over, all those scriptures are right there. You can start breathing again. You don't need to copy them all down. You're not going to lose them. But I wanted you to hear that because I think it's so important that you understand what God thinks about you because many of us have an idea of what God thinks about us and it's not from scripture. It's from other people. It's from our experience. It's from our own thoughts. And this is what God says about us. And the reason why that's so important is what you believe about God is connected to what God believes about you. And if you think that God is obligated to love you, if you think God is kind of just tolerating you, if you think God is quietly disappointed in you, then you're never going to believe what God says about you to be true from Scripture because someone who is obligated to love you, tolerates you, and is disappointed in you, does not love you, offer you grace, take delight in you, is proud of you, they don't go together. One is connected to the other. 
The second most important question we have to ask ourselves today is, do you believe what God says about you is true? It's one thing to hear me read all those scriptures and nod your head. It's another thing to say, I believe it. And Mary had to live with that gap herself. She had to navigate that step from one to the other. Because she heard from the angel that she was favored, that she was trusted, that she was loved. But she was going to have to act on that in courageous and bold ways. Don't forget, or if you haven't heard, let me enlighten you. In the first century, being pregnant outside of marriage was an act punishable by death. It was huge stakes. Somebody who decided they were going to toe the line on the law could have said, hey, Mary's done. So acting on the truth of what God said about her and believing it had tremendous consequences. And I don't know about you, but as I read this story, it makes me wonder some questions. Like, when the angel left, what was Mary thinking about? How am I going to tell Joseph? It doesn't tell us that they told her they're going to tell Joseph. I mean, angel, that would have been important to know. Hey, Joseph, we got him. We're cool. We'll cover him, you know? How about, what am I going to tell my mom? What am I going to tell my dad? My best friends are never going to believe me. Yeah, Mary, mm mm-hmm. An angel? Yeah, I know you're loving Joseph right now, but he's not an angel. No, it's not Joseph, you know? Like, what was going through her head? How was she going to act in this context? How was she going to put her faith in these beliefs into action? And the same thing I think is true for us. There's a lot of people whose voices and opinions about us and what we believe about ourselves, they have huge value in our lives. I want you to imagine almost like there's a a line of microphones across the stage. And that's, in essence, the voices that are at work in your life. All of us have voices in our life that matter to us. And the challenge is for some of us, we believe the voice of God, but we also believe the voice of others. And on a lot of days, we turn down God's volume and we turn up everybody else's. And for some of us, that includes our own voice. For some of us, our own voice is a condemning, defeating, limiting voice. For some of us, there's a narrator in our head that at every turn reminds us of what we've done in the past that means we can't do things in the future. We have voices in our head that say, hey, you're never going to accomplish that. You're never going to be that. You're never going to be able to do that. No one's ever going to see you in that role. No one's ever going to let you do that. What are you thinking? That's not you. Some of us have voices of people in our past. You know, we sing the song, Good, Good Father. For some of us, the limiting factor when it comes to believing God's voice is that we had a father here on earth and he wasn't a good, good father. And his voice still rings in our ears. And on a lot of days, it's louder than the voice of God. And it's hard to connect with the voice of that father when all we hear is the voice of the father we had here. For others of us, it's the voices of people in the present with us. For some of you, you you need to break up with the voices around you. You don't have to limit that person, kick them out of your life, but you need to stop making their voice the most significant one. Because the truth is, if you don't live from the approval and 
the voice of God in your life, you're just going to live for the approval of everybody else. And I have to tell you, having struggled with that myself, there is no amount of approval that anyone can give you that will ever be enough. I spent years with certain men in my life who I wanted to give me approval. People that I worked under and served under, looked up to, I wanted them to say that I was good or that I had done a great job or that I was capable. And when I didn't meet their standards, it made me so restless and unhappy. And I realized that I had given them power that belonged to God. And I realized that in choosing to live for their approval, I didn't live from the approval I already had from God. I had it, and I went after something that I was never going to get, and even if I got it, it would never fill me up. And so that's why it's so important that we believe what God says about us is true. I didn't tell the first, first service this because I thought of it in between. My wife had a professor in law school, male professor, had huge self-image issues that led to identity issues. And we often think about women having self-image issues, but it's not just a gender thing. It's a human thing. And this man really found freedom as he discovered what God said about him. So what this man did was every day he stood in front of the mirror in his house naked. And he looked at the mirror and he said, you were made in the image of God. God knits you together in your mother's womb. God says that you are his masterpiece. You are loved, forgiven, accepted, and known. And he did that every single day. That man was free. And he preached that to himself again and again and again. It wasn't enough for him to read it in the Bible. He had to preach it to himself again and again so that that voice of God was louder than the one in his head and the one in his world. Some of you need to do that. You need to start reminding yourself of what God says about you because there are so many other voices that end up drowning out that voice. Second question, do you believe what God says about you is true? The third question is, what are you prepared to do because of who God says you are? What are you prepared to do because of who God says you are? You know, Mary was going to have to step out regardless of Joseph's thoughts, regardless of her parents' thoughts, and take this thing forward. She was going to have to endure ridicule and criticism, people who weren't going to get it, who weren't going to believe it. She was going to have to not only carry this child, she was going to have to raise him. And it wasn't that people were going to make comments when Jesus was born. They were going to make comments his whole life. She was going to endure criticism and ridicule for years. And yet, in light of what God said, Mary took that step forward. I think most of us at 14 would not have had the courage that Mary did. Some of us who aren't 14 now, we don't have that courage. That's why I think we, we sell ourselves short when we leave Mary to just one Sunday a year. She should be worth more than that because she's such an incredible example of someone who believed what God said and allowed it to empower them. Mary truly believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and I think she got it more and more chunks. When the, when the shepherds came to visit the, the baby, it said that she understood things or saw things more. When, 
when Jesus went to the temple at a young age, it says that she, she heard these things and she treasured them and pondered them in her heart. It, it says that when he, went, he was 12, went to the temple, that, that his parents marveled. I, I think it was kind of a slow reveal of like, oh, he's the Messiah. Oh, he's the Messiah. Oh, he's really the Messiah. Because what, what parent believes their child is actually the Messiah? I don't. My kids are imperfect. You know, this week I was like, Max, you're so cute. And then he headbutted me. And I'm like, you're not the Messiah, you know? Um, you know, I went from like, I love you to I want to kill you in two seconds, you know? So every parent has that struggle. And, and yet they, they were able to embrace this idea that he was the Messiah and that he had come near to them. Because for years, Mary had grown up hearing about this Messiah. And now she held him. He was hers. In John 1.14, Eugene Peterson translates the scripture in the message to read, and the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. He moved in close to us to speak the truth to us about what God believes about us so that we might be, be free. There's a, a movie that came out several years ago, well, many years ago, actually, called The Untouchables. And um, I didn't show the clip today, but there's a famous scene in a church in some pews between Sean Connery and uh, Kevin Costner. They're thinking about how they're going to handle Al Capone. It's a mobster movie. And um, there's a scene in there where Sean Connery says to Kevin Costner, I'll do my best Sean Connery imitation. The first service didn't really appreciate it. Um, he said something like, what are you prepared to do? <laughs> so yeah, it was, that's pretty terrible, right? Um, but that phrase has always stuck with me. Because Costner's talking about all these things he believes and all the things he knows, and, and then Costner goes, or Sean Connery goes, but what are you actually going to do? What are you going to do? Talk, talk, talk. What are you going to do? And the challenge for us is I've just told you today what God says about you, what God says is true about you, but you're going to have to decide what you're going to do in light of that. You're going to have to decide what steps you're going to take because of that. There are some of you in this room who are facing difficult choices. There's opportunities in front of you and you're scared. There's things in the new year that you could take on, but you feel uncertain and insecure. And if you were to accept what God says about you as truth, it would empower you to live courageously. It would empower you to not have to worry about the other people's opinion of you in doing that because you already have secured that. It doesn't mean it's not scary anymore. It just means that you're not giving them the power anymore to hold you back from following Jesus. And that's the thing. Following Jesus is always going to demand courage. It's always going to lead you into places where you're uncomfortable. That's what Mary's story is. And I was reminded this week of the importance of remembering who you, we are and how that empowers us to live. About this time, five years ago, my wife and I lost one of our best, friend, best friends, Anna McCulloch. This is a picture of us with Anne taken in 2010 before Anne got sick with cancer. We were in Phoenix a few weeks ago, and I think Pastor Josh preached, and we were there celebrating uh, Anne's daughter's wedding. Uh, Anne was a huge voice in my life, and um, a lot of the things I've shared with you today came from her influence on me. She introduced me to in the scriptures. We worked together for several years at the church I was at previously. And um, about a year ago, a mutual friend of mine and Anne's uh, found some notes that Anne had taken, took a picture of them, sent them to me, and I discovered those again this week. 
and they speak to some things I've been sharing with you today, and I wanted to share these thoughts with you. These are Anne's words. This first one is almost like God kind of speaking through Anne. It says, love others the way I love you. You can't take care of others unless you take care of yourself. I've reminded myself often, the second part, because if I don't take care of myself, I can't serve you. She said, you need to learn what are God's problems. I think a lot of us need to learn that. We get us confused. Anne wrote, you can only be what God designed you to be. You can't be anything else. And some of us view that as a limiting thing. I think that's empowering and freeing. That God has made us a masterpiece. And when we are who God created us to be, there's tremendous power in there. And then this final one, if you don't know who you are, you will always be impressing people with what you do. And that's the challenge for many of us, is that if we don't embrace what God says about us as true and act on it, instead of following God, instead of being obedient to his calling in our life, we're going to settle just for trying to look cool in front of other people, to earn their approval instead of God's. That's why I believe that knowing who you are in Jesus makes you dangerous and courageous. That may sound odd, But when you take the power back from somebody else to define your worth and value and you live out of your secure identity in Christ, you can take the same type of dangerous, courageous steps that Mary took. Because you're no longer worried, am I okay? You know that you are loved and accepted in God and that will never change. And that frees you to step out and trust him, to follow him wherever he leads you. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the story we have in Mary. And and just myself, I I confess that a lot of times I, I come to the Christmas story with tired eyes. I've read it before and I've seen it before. God, I pray that that you would give us this season new perspective, that we'd hear what it is that you want to speak to us. And I pray for my friends in this room and those who are watching online who who struggle to know, believe, and act on what you say about them. God, if we don't hear your voice, if we don't trust in it, God, we're never going to be able to follow in and step out in the things you're calling us to. So I pray this Christmas season that we might hear and believe and act on say about us. I truly believe that what you say about me and my friends here is the truest thing about us. May you set us free this morning as we trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.